Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, Steve Ovens. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, my friend. How's it going? Hey, you know, Steve, it's been great. It's been an absolutely fantastic week. Um, I understand this week you had a bit of a password snaf, a positive password snafu. Yeah, I ended up moving away from LastPass um, and migrating towards Bitwarden. So tell me a little bit about what led up to that. What did you see in LastPass that you said, hey, it's time to look for another platform? And then how did you wind up for Bitwarden and what do you think of it? So I had been on LastPass for I don't even know how long, a very long time. And I wasn't particularly happy when they were bought out by, I believe, VlogMeIn. And I started to see some of the direction that they were going with, uh, let's say I thought that they were losing their focus on as a password manager and kind of spreading out. Didn't really like that, but I'd been, I tried Bitwarden personally and then I went through a trial at Red Hat where we were trying them out. And uh, there were some things that I felt were missing the last time my LastPass came up for renewal. And so I just kind of did that. But having moved countries, uh, I canceled most of my credit cards in Canada, including the one that was attached here. And so I got the email saying, hey, we couldn't auto-renew you. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should probably take care of that. Um, So I decided that I was going to migrate to Bitwarden because some of the stuff that I was looking for ended up being added in the time between the last time I looked at it. So ultimately, it was pretty easy to do a migration because they actually have a a tiny little guide, and I wouldn't even say you need the guide, for how to do a LastPass. Um, Essentially, LastPass just dumps all of your stuff to a CSV, and then you import it to Bitwarden and tell it that you're importing the CSV from LastPass. Um, There were some kind of little... Uh, let's say paper cuts in the data mi- migration. So uh, because I was the only one that I knew that had a premium account, we didn't have any kind of shared LastPass a- a- amongst the people that I know. And so we were just sharing passwords. And LastPass allows you to do this thing where you can share passwords over email or whatever. And you can do little toggles like, hey, don't let this person actually see the password. So there were several things. I migrated my wife and myself over to Bitwarden, and we had shared various passwords. And the passwords that were shared with us did not come across in the migration. So I don't know if they're not exported or whether Bitwarden doesn't read them properly. Not a huge deal necessarily, unless you have a, a ton of those and you know, you're not migrating the person you share with. So there, there were some interesting challenges along the way. Cost-wise, about the same, a little bit more, a little bit less? Uh, It ended up being just slightly more than what I was paying for LastPass for the family plan of Bitwarden. 
How about uh, hosting? Is are you paying for the their dedicated hosting? Are you using the free option or are you self hosting? I am using the paid hosting because, well, for many reasons. I could, I absolutely could host this myself. I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. But it's one of those things that it's about the same what I was paying for LastPass, and it might as well go to supporting the project. Yeah, that's great, outstanding. Well, thanks, I guess, for sharing that and. Uh... Let me know how it continues to go. I've I've been on Bitmorden for a long time and uh, been really happy with it. So I hope you will be too. And you know, one of the things our it was I think our church tech director and I were having this conversation is if Bitwarden can't really get solved or sold to a company we don't like, and if they did, then we could just self-host because all the code's open. So there's that. As they say. Oh, one last thing I was going to ask you about uh, the family plan and business plan. Um, you signed up for a family plan. Can you talk about a little bit about what that feature is and what you think of it? So the family plan allows you to have up to six people. And uh, so Bitwarden has this idea of organizations and inside of the business plan, you can have one, two, three, four, five. I'm not sure what the cap on the number of organizations is when you're paying for it. Um, the family plan has one organization. The reason why this is kind of important is because the way that I am aware that Bitwarden does say password sharing is you migrate the password from your personal vault into the organization vault. And then anybody who has been given rights to the organization in whatever capacity then can get access to those passwords. Um, so, because it's my wife and I, and, you know, I was already going to be paying some amount for a personal account. I just decided to do the family account. Very cool. And are you happy with it? Working well? I mean, it's working well enough for me. I think there's some interesting challenges with Bitwarden and private browsing mode. And there are there's some other little gotchas here and there that are just different from LastPass. And some of it's user education and some of it's just not quite as polished. And, you know, I think sometimes it's a good idea to be honest about these things when we're, uh, when we're talking about kind of the darling child of the open source. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, in our feedback segment tonight, we'll start out with, I believe it's Jan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Jan writes in and says, regarding the episode with the interview with Andy Yen, the, uh, Proton Mail CEO, uh, with regarding to the laws regarding VPN in Sweden, he links to a Molvad uh, help article that talks about the Swedish legislation. And then uh, he also links to another one uh, talking about lawful interception. Quote, the state, this is him, quote, the statement about VPNs in Sweden is incorrect. Under Swedish law, VPNs are not a communication service. And the same thing he said about Swiss VPN applies very much so for Swedish VPNs. I don't know what Swiss law, so I can't say if a statement is accurate about Swiss VPNs, but the statement about Sweden is incorrect. Uh, sincerely, Jan. So I really appreciate you writing in and pointing out. Obviously, we never want to spread misinformation, and I'm sure if it was a mistake, then it was an honest mistake on Andy's part. But I definitely appreciate you calling that out and, and bringing our attention to it. So we'll have uh, both of those articles linked in the show notes. So if you'd like to reference those, you can check it out. Um and uh, while you're there, I was I would encourage you to check out Molvad VPN as well. Uh, more competition in this area, I think, the better. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, "Good day. 
are Linux laptops worth the extra price tag? They seem to come with a premium price tag, yet are made in China, and they're still not don't have a replaceable battery. They're soft plastic and sometimes no Ethernet port. For example, the Starlight Mark IV laptop comes out in February of 2022. It comes down to 777 euros in Australia, and that's about 1,200 bucks, without shipping or import tax. Uh, he links to Starlabs.System and a Gaming on Linux article that talks about Starlabs introducing uh, the Starlight. It's an 11-inch IPS uh, N5030 Intel processor with 8 gigabytes of RAM, a 256, 250 gig uh, SSD. It does have USB-C ports, a 3.5-inch jack, and HDMI port. Is it really worth justifying the cost compared to a uh, a solid build like the old ThinkPads were in the day? Charlie. So I think there's a lot here to unpack, and I think it's a really great question. So I would start by telling you this. Um, I would encourage everybody, no matter if you're purchasing a laptop, starting a business, looking at evaluating a different job, quitting a job, anything you do, I would encourage you to make those decisions based on values. Uh, and that is absolutely true when you're purchasing hardware. Purchase hardware that's in line with your values. Now, if your values are, it's a tool, I use it for work, so I want the low, least expensive thing that's going to get the job done, or I'm willing to pay any amount of money, but I just wanted to get the job done with this with as little hassle as possible, that is a very different value set than, hey, I want to run a free and open source operating system on my laptop because I like the freedom, flexibility, security, and uh, stability that comes with that if those two are, 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 are different value sets. And so when you're purchasing a Starlight laptop or a Starlabs laptop or you're purchasing a System76, um, you're purchasing those laptops because you agree with the value set of a company that is interested in investing in the Linux and open source ecosystem. Pop OS would not be a thing if it weren't first for a company that were making stellar Linux laptops and now Linux desktops and now Linux desktops that are built inside of the United States as well as servers. I've seen System76 from the inside out. They're people that get it. And so do I want to give my money? Do I want to open my wallet and support the companies that are doing that? Or do I want to support the companies that they look over at Linux and say, yeah, there might be a buck to be made. So let's go ahead and build the exact same hardware that we're building for Windows, swap out a couple parts, maybe. Uh, and they sell the things without a whole lot of support. You open a System76 ticket and say, hey, Gnome is doing this weird thing. You're likely to find somebody else that is working on GNOME that will respond to that ticket because they're using their own dog food. You can be almost guaranteed that the people that are working at Lenovo, even though they sell ThinkPads pre-installed with Fedora, are not using Fedora. The vast majority of them aren't. Um, same is likely true for, for Dell. Um, so if you want to support that ecosystem and you want to support those people doing that kind of work and you want to have a support infrastructure in place for the operating system that you want to use, that's where the tremendous value is in these companies. Now, I think there's another side to that. And the other side to that is when you start comparing apples to apples, you'll notice that there aren't any uh, Linux, born to run Linux laptops that feature Thunderbolt. Um, and part of that is because those are the kind of features that are very difficult for smaller companies to negotiate and license fees and implementation and all of that. And so to a certain degree, sometimes their hands are tied. Now, System76 is moving some of those obstacles out of the way because they're bringing production into the United States and doing more of that design in their own in-house facilities and stuff like that. So I think that landscape is changing. But the reality is you are making a compromise in either direction 
uh, when you choose to purchase a Linux laptop. It's a different compromise than you'd make if you purchased, uh, you know, a Dell XPS and loaded Linux on it. It's a different compromise yet that you'd make if you purchased an X1 Carbon and loaded Linux on it. So you're choosing where you want to make those compromises. Steve, what are your thoughts? Is, is, it, is it worth the premium cost to purchase a, a Linux laptop? Yeah, that's that's a really tough one. I, I guess I should say I've bought three machines from System76. Uh, I've loved them all. I actually, they're all still working. I handed one down to my sister-in-law and she is now using a Linux laptop. Um, so I make those choices when I can. There are times where living in Canada, the shipping becomes prohibitively expensive. So even if I want to pay the premium, I'll give you an example. I went and bought a Dell laptop in, I want to say 2017 when I refreshed my laptop because UPS wanted $450 to bring the thing Whoa. across. And that, you know, and I was looking at a, like a $1,200 laptop um, from System76 at the time. And that I just couldn't, I couldn't justify, because I'm not giving that money to System76 or to the ecosystem. I'm giving that to somebody who just is walking in across the border right. for absorbent amounts of money. Um, so it, it really it comes down to the calculus that you're making when you're making these decisions. And uh, I tend to try to support them, not least because I make my money for my living off of Linux. And I would like to see other people be able to do that as well. Ah, that's, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great take on it. I, I like that. Uh, Jimmy writes in and says, hi, Steve and Noah, where do you get music for offline use? Is there a good alternative from online streaming services? Thanks for all you do, Jimmy. Um, so I think, Steve, you said you use uh, Spotify. You just use the offline syncing feature? Yeah. So my wife is a big uh, music person, and we, we like Spotify for that because, I mean, you just go into your playlist and tell it to download for offline. While I buy my Blu-rays and my TV shows and stuff like that that, that we really like, never been really compelled to do that for music for various reasons, like your tastes change or, or whatever. So, you know, something like Spotify with the offline has been more than sufficient for us. So I'm in a slightly different boat. I, my issue with Spotify is if I stop paying the subscription service, then I lose access to all of my quote unquote offline music. Cause it was never really my music. It was their music that they let me sync. Um, the other thing is I'm sort of an atypical person when it comes to what devices I'm using. Um, if I have, if I always have access to an Android or iOS phone, then downloading the Spotify app is not really a big deal. But if I'm playing with Sailfish OS or I've flashed the latest version of Manjaro Arm on my Pine phone and now I want to listen to music, it gets a little more dicey. I have uh, traditionally purchased all my music off of Amazon and Really, the video and, and TV industry would do well to copy Amazon's example in this regard because I uh, used to obtain music differently. We'll just put it that way. But it got to be where it was so cumbersome, it was so easy to purchase music from Amazon for 99 cents. You just buy the song, you get the proper rip. Um, if if you purchase the CD like you purchased an album, sometimes I want the physical album because the the top bit rate 
of an MP3 is 320 kilobits per second. The top bit rate of a CD is something like 2,500. So I mean, you're you're way up there. Um, so I, there's there's a there's a huge quality difference when you're going down to MP3. And sometimes I just want those those full flak rips, and so I'll do that. But the nice thing that Amazon does, if I buy the CD. They give you access to the MP3 rips, so I don't have to actually wait for the CD to arrive before I can uh, download those MP3s. And then once they're downloaded and they're on my NAS, they're my files. I own them. There's no DRM on them. There's no uh, limit on how long I can have them or what devices or how many devices I can sync them to, any of that. So it gets dropped in my NAS. It gets it uh, gets read by Volumio to play them in the house. I also still have a uh, an iPod Classic um, that I use because it's a totally offline device, has no microphone, has no speaker, and there's some really great software to manage that we'll get to in our, uh, in our software pick, uh, this evening. But, um, yeah, Amazon works really well. I, I used to use Google, bought a decent amount of music on Google too, but so far as I understand it, they have now discontinued that. You can't purchase music, um, permanent music that you can download anymore. So, um, I, I hope that helps you. Uh, I hope that helps you, Jimmy. But my answers are either Amazon and purchase the MP3s or just continue to buy the CD disc and then rip it yourself. Those are probably the best ways to uh, to have local music. Our fourth email. So, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say one of the other considerations for us is that um, we listen. My wife and I listen to foreign music. So she's a native Italian speaker and uh, I like kind of a genre in German and that makes things like Amazon and Google music difficult. Whereas Spotify seems to have access to those sorts of things. So that, you know, there are, if you speak another language and you're looking for those sorts of concerns, I've found that the, the bigger places like Apple music or, or Amazon, well, I haven't looked into Amazon, but I know Google music also kind of struggled in that area. Yeah, that's a great point. Although I will say there is a, uh, there was a, there was a German rap, artist that I, I really was really into for a while and they had a song called five cross arapa and that was available on amazon so they have some of that but i think if you're going out into some of that niche stuff then i think that's where it becomes a better choice to just purchase the cd and then rip the music um, then you're getting the full quality rips you have the option of getting the full quality rips number one and number two there really is the sky's the limit on where you can purchase it because most artists are still released for the time being releasing cds Although I, I fear that's kind of, kind of going by the wayside as as things move more digital. Our fourth email comes in from Ashley. Ashley writes in and says, "Hey Noah, long time no chat. Jumped off Facebook after the election, and have not been on Telegram in a while. But I still keep up with the show. I'm trying to degoogleify my life, and man, I'm in deep. I've had Google Voice since it was Grand Central." Google Voice works with voice and SMS. However, I want to divorce Google for my phone service. Not interested in my number uh, in my number being at one of the big three cell phone companies for personal reasons. I was looking at a pure VoIP service that supports phone and SMS, but I don't want any hardware other than my phone. So a soft phone Android app would work great. I would prefer unlimited calls in and out. This would just use the cellular data Wi-Fi that my phone or tablet already have. I would also keep my phone's primary number for emergency use and was hoping to find something cheaper than Uma's business service, which is about $27 a month. Any ideas? Thanks. And all the best, bud. So first of all, great to reconnect with you, Ashley. I uh, There's a lot of people that I used to connect with on Facebook, and as their privacy has gotten more and more abysmal, those people have kind of fallen off, and so I've kind of lost contact with them. So it's it's great to to, to hear back from some of those people. Um, I guess uh, 
I'll start with this. And I had I Steve actually just kind of went through this and so I'll have him talk about uh, his experience. But I uh, have been moving all of my numbers over to one of two places, either flow route, which is a SIP provider or Vox Telesis, which is a SIP trunking provider. Now, my the the way that I make that decision is if it's something I want to manage myself, uh, a flow route has a really nice dashboard that you just sign in and you can configure all of the things where you want to point your number to, where you want to point SMS to, all of that stuff. If I'm going with a business plan, I have a business that I'm signing up or I, there's some sort of professional use for the number, I typically go with Vox Telesis because while they don't have the a dashboard to configure a lot of that stuff myself, I have to open support tickets for it, they offer hosting for all of that. Um, so if you're up for hosting your own server, and then you can go the flow route way and you could just self-host something like 3CX, which is what Steve's doing. If you're looking for a hosted solution and you want everything just kind of delivered to you, then I would suggest checking out Vox Telesis. So I guess, Steve, I want to hear how it's going for you. You recently, uh, I think on my recommendation, went with flow route and 3CX. Um, how is that working for voice and text? Yeah, so you're correct. I, I went to Noah back in, I want to say July, and said, hey, I want to keep my Canadian number. Um, I don't want to pay the stupid Canadian fees for it because it's retarded how expensive they are. Um, and landed on FlowRoute and 3CX after a lot of back and forth. So I don't self-host, just to make things clear. Um, 3CX has a thing where the first year is free and then the second year it's $100 a year, which sounds expensive, except when you break that down per month, it's really not that bad. It's less than $9. Um, and uh, just a note on the cost, it's not unlimited for flow route, but it's pretty cheap. Like I was looking at my my this month's totals and I'd use 240 minutes and it cost me $2. So, I mean, it's not unlimited, but it's also not breaking the bank. Um, the one kind of gotcha I had is that the SMS doesn't seem to work for automated things. So if you had some sort of uh, two-factor authentication that you forgot to switch over before doing this migration, you'll have trouble. I had exactly one that I missed, and it kind of bit me pretty hard um, because for whatever reason, those texts don't come through. Personal text, no problems, but... Uh, Anything like your bank or, um, you know, if you've got an Apple account or whatever else you, you might have, I haven't been able to receive those ones. I'll give uh, one last plug. I have talked about this on the past on the show, but jmp.chat. Essentially, you can sign up for a phone number there and they expose access to that SMS via an XMPP endnote. So if you have an XMPP client, you can connect to it. By the way, I'll make a shameless plug. I would personally pair that with a matrix bridge and receive all of those messages on Element, which is what I'm currently trying to do. The other way that you can do that is with something called Twilio. Twilio exposes both the voice and the SMS uh, over an API. And so we actually, I have a working demo of this right now. We ha I had a, our, our in-house developer um, tie a Twilio 
uh, bridge to directly to Matrix. And so if you've not checked out Element, I would definitely encourage you to do so. Uh, much more freedom respecting than Facebook. And we could certainly continue to chat and, and, and discuss this in more detail. But um, that's kind of the direction that I'm going. Ideally, when Matrix rolls out the rest of their features uh, for SMS and SIP, I'm excited to be able to do all of my phone calls and all of my texts inside of one app. So that's going to be really fantastic. Without further ado, Stefano Chitola, the Director of Technical Programs for RISC-V International, joins us this hour to talk about RISC-V. Stefano, thanks so much for taking the time for, to, to be here and joining us. Welcome into the program, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. So I want to start with this, uh, Stefano. If there's somebody out there that says, well, we're talking about processor types. I don't know anything about processors. Let's start with uh, explaining what is an ISA. Sure. So when you buy a computer from uh, from any laptop maker, say Dell or Apple, uh, you're buying a processor inside that computer that conforms to a certain standard. Uh, the standard for most laptops is going to be one of two. Uh, it's either going to be based on x86, which is brought to you by folks like Intel and, uh, and AMD, or it might be an ARM-based uh, instruction set. And that's uh, probably most popular is going to be in your cell phone. And now Apple is producing a lot of chips uh, themselves, and they're using the ARM architecture. So the reason I'm differentiating between those two is because they're probably the two most popular. Um, but there are plenty of other ISAs out there. And all the ISA does is it acts as a bridge between the hardware and the software. Uh, the software is going to tell the hardware what to do, and it needs to speak a specific language. The two dominant languages today are x86 and ARM. Uh, so when you write your program, some uh, compiler, some tool is going to then convert it into ones and zeros. And in it, when it does that, those need to conform to one of those standards. Uh, RISC-V is a different standard. It's one that is based on the RISC or reduced instruction set computing architecture set. That's the same one that ARM uses. It's a it's a concept of computation, and it's uh, it's the fifth iteration that came out of Berkeley, which is why it's RISC-V. Uh, the pronunciation of RISC-V is is a joke around the office, and that we'll often have people call it RISC-V, but it is indeed RISC-V. Okay. Yeah. And that was actually one of my questions was, well, what's up with the five thing? Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of RISC-V? When did it start? And what was, tell me the, tell me the origin story. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we are sort of uh, lucky today in that we are used to not having to concern ourselves with the details of an ISA. Uh, we buy our, our electronics and they come uh, programmed for us and uh, most things are interoperable. Some folks will remember the days when uh, your uh, stuff that worked on your Mac wouldn't work on your PC. And for the most part, those days are gone. Our phones and our computers all talk to each other and we don't really think about what underpins how the computer does what it does. Uh, that was not always the case. There used to be quite a few different ISAs to choose from, and indeed programmers would have to know the difference between these ISAs and write their code depending on what machine they were writing it for. So when those things were common, there was an architecture that came out of Berkeley that they called RISC. Again, I'll just gloss over the reduced instruction set computing. Uh, the 
the uh, most popular reduced instruction set computing today is ARM. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the most popular CISC or complex instruction set computing is x86. And the differences therein aren't terribly important. What's important to know is that we don't concern ourselves day to day with what these ISAs do. Uh, historically, it was very important, and Berkeley did a lot of research, uh, came out with the RISC architecture, and slowly iterated it over the, iterated on it over the years. The difference, the thing that changed was uh, in 2010, uh, researchers at, at Berkeley came out with this fifth iteration, and the goal was to create something uh, that could be used in an educational institution to teach kids, to teach students about uh, instruction set architectures and how to design computer chips. That goal ended out with an instruction set that many people in industry looked at and thought, well, we can actually use this in our products. And that concept uh, was actually encouraged by the folks at Berkeley. And so what you ended up with around 2012 is you started to see uh, industry giants like Western Digital taking advantage of this instruction set in their own designs. And the thing that enabled them to do that was the way it was licensed. It was licensed in an open source manner. Uh, Berkeley was not claiming any um, a- any cost that would be associated with using the instruction set. So as a counterexample, right, if, uh, if Samsung wants to make a cell phone and use ARM's ISA, They can do that, but they have to pay royalties to ARM to do it for each unit they ship. That's what was very attractive at first about RISC-V, was the fact that Western Digital could use it, and they didn't have to pay Berkeley for each uh, unit that they shipped that used that ISA. What it also encouraged was open discourse around how the ISA was produced, and that's really uh, sort of the, uh, the most important part of what we're doing. We are allowing people to change and expand on what the instruction set architecture does and do it in an open source fashion where uh, it's not one company or one group dictating what happens, but rather a community of people that are, that are helping to develop this ISA. So as things grew, uh, moving on to 2015, that's when RISC-V uh, was founded, RISC-V Foundation at the time. Uh, and that's where they realized they needed a group of folks who were uh, going to act in order to manage the instruction set architecture and how it was developed in the community, uh, much like the Linux Foundation manages how a lot of open source projects are run. Um, the RISC-V Foundation was uh, moved to Switzerland a couple of years ago uh, and became RISC-V International, but the charter remains the same. Uh, we work every day to ensure that the engineers at hundreds of different companies are able to work on this ISA, develop new extensions, and essentially uh, see what products could benefit from this open source architecture. Many people have made the comparison that Risk Five is the Linux hardware of IS or the Linux of hardware ISAs. How is Risk Five uh, the Linux of hardware? Do you agree with that statement? In part, yes. <clears throat> so uh, the caveat is this: Linux uh, Linux came about and certainly changed the way we thought about software. Right? It unseated a lot of the uh, the concepts that we had of you know. Uh, I'm going to buy my operating system from Microsoft because they're going to stand behind that and support it. And the concept was 
you know, well-tried and uh, certainly effective for many years in that I knew my operating system was going to work well because a company stood behind it. Uh, what Linux said was, well, you can have a community of people contributing to your operating system, and it will still work really well. And most people sort of wrote that off at first, but as the years went on, not only did they realize that that was true, companies, corporations started to realize that they were doing a lot of work to customize and support an operating system in a way in which they all needed to do it anyway. So if all of them needed audio drivers that worked and all of them needed graphic drivers that worked, why were they all going off in their separate organizations and working on those customizations? And so that idea of community and that idea that there could be support on a large-scale product uh, line, even if it wasn't backed by one singular uh, corporate entity, uh, that idea really took off. And that comparison to RISC-V, I think, is is really apt. RISC-V is going to take the concept that we all need a general purpose processor in many applications. And that general purpose processor is going to do some very basic things like addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. It's going to store and load data from different areas. Those functions are going to happen the same regardless of which ISA you choose. So if we all agree on the way to do that, and we all combine our efforts around those fundamental concepts, then we can start building our own custom extensions on top of those that do the essentially value add of what our what our businesses are lined up to do. So from that perspective, it's very similar. The place where it changes is how you develop software and how you developed hardware are very, very different things. And so uh, one of the things that we're sort of learning and forging ahead at RISC-V International is how are we going to go about creating an instruction set architecture that lets product makers, people who make laptops and desktops and servers and people who make um you know, <clears throat> video monitors that you put on the external outside of your house for security purposes or, you know, Bluetooth speakers that you uh, can just place in different parts of your house so that you have integrated audio throughout your house without having to install anything in your walls. These things all need processors in them. And how we're going to develop an ISA that enables that in an open source manner is really a new idea. And so that's the part where I think the analogy kind of breaks down. Uh, we can't have one giant mailing list in the sky like LKML. We can't all contribute in the same way using uh, using text email to send our patches to one mailing list. Uh, but uh, we will use some similar form of open source development. It'll just be a little different. It'll be geared toward hardware. Who can contribute to RISC-V? Obviously, um, there's going to be a need for things like electrical engineers and computer scientists, um, but I'm sure there's a lot of other needs as well. Uh, what kind of needs do you guys have and what kind of understanding is needed to design things like the circuitry? Sure. Uh, so to answer your first question, anyone who's interested can put, can contribute to RISC-V. Uh, that's... It's it's about as straightforward as we can get. Um, membership is free as an individual, uh, or if you're a, if you work for a corporation that happens to already be a member, you don't even need to be an individual member. You're already a member, um, and that's how you can contribute to the ISA, the Instruction Set Architecture itself. But that being said. You may not be interested in hardware design. You may not know what Verilog is as a, as a programming language. You might not be interested in circuit design. You can still contribute to RISC-V because it really, for RISC-V to succeed, 
the whole spectrum of what we uh, need to do to create it, any electronic product needs to happen. So everything from the designers that are designing in Verilog, the circuits that we need to work, through to the firmware and the low-level code that interacts with that hardware, through to the compilers that compile code like C, uh, all the way up through applications that run in Linux, um, that allow people to uh, run their open source operating system, and then you know finishing off at the top with these higher level programs. All of them need to uh, run well on RISC-V. And to do that, we need a strong community at all ends of that spectrum. And so, you know, I work every day with engineers that are hardware engineers, that are, you know, hardware architects. They create digital circuits for a living. And I help them to build standards, uh, specifications that will allow new concepts to be integrated into the ISA. And that's a very small sliver of society. Most people don't uh, do that for a living. The people that I also work with are people in the software industry who do things like compiler optimization or tooling. There's a lot more of those folks out there, and they want to know how to contribute. And for most of the software stuff, all of our code is up on GitHub, and it's all open for pull requests. So if you want to contribute to GCC for the... GCC is one of the more common compilers. If you wanted to contribute to that and start your journey of being a compiler engineer, you could do that at RISC-V. Um, that's one of the hidden benefits of RISC-V. As a software engineer, you're not going to get the chance to be a compiler engineer or work on optimization unless that's your specialty. Most of that stuff is already done for a lot of the architectures that are out there, and very few and highly complex changes are needed every year. With RISC-V, we're starting from the ground up, so there's lots of opportunity for folks who are saying, you know, I've always wanted to be someone who worked on optimizers. Well, RISC-V has a ton of work to do on optimizers. Or if you're really interested in some of the JavaScript engines, like V8, working on V8 for x86, you're in good company. Plenty of work has already been done there, and plenty of people are already working on that. But we have a group working on optimizing V8 for RISC-V, and that's an opportunity for folks to get involved in a software project that they normally wouldn't have had a chance to because it's already replete with experts. Um, so yeah, the whole stack really. And then to sort of cap it off, we also need help within the community. Um, we uh, we hold several virtual events every year now during COVID, and when when we go back to in person meetings, we'll be holding several in person events every year. So there's lots of opportunities to get involved in starting meetups. We have a program uh, called the Risk Five Ambassadors, where you don't need to be a software or hardware expert. You just have to be interested in the Risk Five ecosystem. Maybe you're just a maker who creates things with you know small developer boards. We need people like that to work with the hardware that we're producing and create interesting things and then talk about it. Go to meetups in the Bay Area or New York or uh, in the Pacific Northwest and talk about what you're doing. We even have meetups in Europe and in Asia. So really, from a global standpoint, regardless of what your interest is, if you're interested in RISC-V, there's a way to get involved. You referenced the RISC-V International Organization. Tell me a little bit about the RISC-V International Organization and what led to its formation and why it's based in Switzerland. Sure. Uh, so the first question is kind of easy to answer. Um, when an open source project gets to a certain size, they realize that there are just way too many tasks for the community to manage. Uh, and this is true of uh, 
lots of different open source tasks. Before I uh, came on to RISC-V full-time, I worked for the Linux Foundation. And we worked with lots of, you know, small, just getting started open source projects. And at first, they really don't need a lot of help, right? Um, that Really what they need to do is do more work. They need to write more code and check it in. And that's really the main task. Once that's done and lots of people are using their open source product, they start to need support. They start to need someone who's going to help manage the technical oversight of the project. Someone who's going to help do the simple business operational needs. Things like, you know, they're going to need some system to do chat. Well, that chat system is probably not going to be free. And if it isn't, somebody needs to pay for it. And someone needs to manage the fact that it's being paid for every year. So everything from the... um operational side, uh, everything from the uh, technical oversight side, and then everything from the business oversight side eventually becomes too much work for a community to handle on their own. And most open source projects will spin up a nonprofit organization. So that's essentially what happened with RISC-V. RISC-V got to the size where the community itself couldn't support all the needs, and they created it a nonprofit organization to manage that process. So to give you a simple day-to-day example, um, we have several specifications that are about to be ratified in 2021. Those specifications needed to have due diligence. Uh, They needed someone to go through and check to make sure, well, from a technical standpoint, is this okay? They needed uh, a legal entity to look at it and say, hey, are we doing anything that's going to get us in trouble legally? They needed uh, someone to look at it from a community standpoint and say, hey, is the language that we're using inclusive or are we using language we shouldn't? That's what RISC-V International does. We organize all of that work. We ensure that there's technical oversight by technical experts. We ensure that there's legal oversight by our legal team. And we ensure that there's oversight from an open source perspective. We're, we're looking at the community aspects and assuring that that's being addressed as well. Uh, so that's kind of the um, the overall mission or overall uh, goals of RISC-V International. Uh, as to why it's uh, in Switzerland, that's a bit more complicated. I would defer to the lawyers on that one. Uh, but basically, uh, we moved to Switzerland uh, at the request of the board of directors. And the hope is that it will uh, portray RISC-V as a organization which is completely open source and also located in a country which is known to be um, uh, not not one in which it has a direct interest in uh, in the ISA that we're developing. Your role with RISC-V International is Director of Technical Programs. Can you briefly describe a little bit about what your role is and what you do there? I'm the Director of Technical Programs at RISC-V International, which essentially means I'm now uh, in charge of technical program managers <laughs> at RISC-V International. Um, and really what we do, the, the, the technical program managers at RISC-V, we, um, we enable the engineers and the community to get the work done that they need to get done. Um, and we do that with a perspective and a, uh, a history in, uh, in technology. So, uh, Jeff Scheel is another one of the technical program managers. He's worked, he worked at IBM for, uh, over 10 years. Um, I, I've been in the, in the, uh, technology industry for just shy of 20 years now. And what we essentially do is, uh, we're, we're able to take all the work that's being done, organize it. And uh, I mentioned oversight before, direct the oversight 
to the technical steering committee. So the way uh, Risk Five is is uh, is divided up is the board of directors essentially sits uh, as the uh, top level oversight for the ISA development, but they've chartered the technical oversight to the technical steering committee. The idea being that the board of directors is in charge of strategic business vision for Risk Five. Uh, but they need a set of technical experts to do the same thing for te- for the technical end. The technical steering committee is made up of mostly uh, hardware architects and designers that have been doing this for a long time. And when a new specification wants to be ratified, that's the group that needs to be convinced that that extension, that specification, is not only valid, but needed. And so we have a process that we take these specifications through that includes a planning phase where we have discussions in the technical steering committee about whether or not it's actually needed, whether or not it adds value, whether or not it belongs somewhere else and not in an ISA specification, all the way through to the work that needs to be done that we guide with a task group. And then we circle back with the technical steering committee at the end and talk to them about here's the work that was done, here's the specification that was created, and here's the due diligence that says uh, we know that the compilers work with this. We know that this is uh, a needed uh, feature in the community, and here are the people that are already using it. Here are the proof of concept of why this is valuable. And so uh, that the goal of the technical program managers at RISC-V International is to ensure that that happens, and that happens in a way that's efficient and that meets the criteria that the board has set forward for us. It's well understood how open source software projects like Linux itself benefit businesses. In what way does RISC-V benefit small businesses who are designing products around it? Sure. So the the key to RISC-V and the real differentiation for everyone, especially though for small businesses, for people just starting to create a product, um, is the flexibility of RISC-V. When you use an architecture that uh, like ARM or x86, you are locked into what they've done. And so if it's if you're looking for a general purpose processor and you're not going to change at all how it works, the benefit of RISC-V is there's no royalties. You can use it for free. If you are going to change the way it works, if you're going to add some, let's say, machine learning accelerator, the flexibility of RISC-V is that you can build on the relatively simple base that we've created take advantage of the more advanced features that we're just currently ratifying this year, and then build on top of that with your ideas. And throughout that process, there's no restrictions from RISC-V. So if you wanted to create something that was standard, let's say I'll use the machine learning algorithm example. If you wanted to come up with some circuit that implemented a machine learning algorithm and you wanted it to be a standard, you could work with us to do that. The other option is you can create your own custom extension that doesn't need to be publicized, doesn't need to be a standard, and it can be your value add. And then you can go off and build products that take advantage of that. And so that flexibility is really key to why people are looking at RISC-V as the next great thing they can use to innovate. Risk Five is just one of a few, is is one of a few companies. Uh, you've mentioned hundreds. How many companies are involved in the development of Risk Five? Or can you give me a ballpark idea of how many hands are are working towards that common goal? Yeah, I can indeed. So, uh, Risk Five International is broken up into three tiers. The first one is uh, premier members. Um, 
Obviously, all of this work I'm talking about does cost money, so we do have paid members. <laughs> There's two tiers, Premier and Strategic. Uh, today, we have around 20 Premier members. Uh, these are companies you've heard of, like Western Digital, uh, Huawei. Um, the other, the strategic members, we have just over 220 of them today. And those also include companies you heard of, like Qualcomm and Seagate. Um, the the third tier is really what's key. The third tier is individual and community members. So I mentioned earlier that in order to do the development of these ISA specifications, you don't need to pay anything. You can be an individual member for free if the company you work for isn't a member. Uh, right now, we have just over 2,000 individual members. And I think if you include the community members, so community includes nonprofits like uh, FreeBSD is a good example. I believe we have 2,500 plus uh, members from communities and individuals. That's really the power of RISC-V. And likewise, you know, you mentioned Linux earlier. That's the power of Linux. Because yes, from a Linux perspective, right, you've got giants like Intel and uh, Samsung contributing to the kernel. You also have the largest group of people contributing to the kernel, which is individual contributors. And RISC-V is the same way. We have thousands of individual contributors who are able to come to the task group meetings where we develop these specifications. Can you tell me a little bit about your target demographic, your client base? Where is the RISC-V infrastructure most popular? Who is your target audience? Sure. Now, that's a good question because it is actually changing, too. Uh, and traditionally, it started off uh, simple. Uh, we, we had a simple ISA, and so simple products used it. So if you think about uh, Western Digital, right, uh, they make a lot of hard drives. Those hard drives have small computers in them. They have microcontrollers. Uh, relatively simple, but they ship millions of them. Uh, so RISC-V is inside all of those microcontrollers at that Western Digital shipping. And that's kind of the demographic that it started with. We started with folks who needed low-level, very simple computational products. Over time, it's starting to grow into more what you would think of as IoT or embedded uh, devices, things like those Bluetooth speakers I mentioned, um, uh, things like automotive, where you might have, you know, 20 or 30 different CPUs inside your car doing different things. Uh, these are the places that we're starting to see RISC-V become more popular. But if you've paid attention to the news, uh, there's also these larger, more complex chips, these 16 core chips that are coming out of Alibaba. It's inevitable that people are going to start using RISC-V in more of the day-to-day -day things we see, like cell phones, laptops, uh, and servers. That's going to take time, and we already have uh, special interest groups and task groups started that are working on those sort of ideas. But I think that's the trend you're going to see. Yes, we currently have a huge foothold in the microcontroller arena, but we're starting to move into IoT, automotive, and industrial. And then as that cements itself as you know the next uh, place where we have a foothold, you'll start to see more and more people think, well, why doesn't my cell phone run RISC-V? I've seen Android running on RISC-V. What do I need to do to produce a cell phone that runs that? And I think that's where you're going to see things going is uh, next is you'll start to see things like cell phones and, and desktop computers. Um, Sci-Fi, one of our premier members, recently released an unmatched board, which is essentially a small desktop computer uh, running RISC-V.
Where is the best place to purchase or get started with RISC-V? There's somebody listening to this, Stefano, and they're hearing it and they're saying, I want to explore this technology. I want to learn about alternative ISAs. Where can those people go for resources? Sure. So I'd start just by going to our website, uh, risk5.org. Uh, there's a section specifically uh, devoted to learning, and it's got a whole bunch of information of different places you can go depending on what you want to learn. Uh, so for example, there's, uh, there's a lot of folks out there that want to get involved in the circuit design. They want to uh, create, they want to download a uh, RISC-V core, put it on their, uh, on their field programmable gate array, their FPGA, and try out a RISC-V core and try, you know, creating new IP on it. That's, that's a small group of people, but there's plenty of information out there uh, on the website on where you can go to, uh, to grab a RISC-V core, like the IBEX core, which is available on GitHub. And the IBEX core is able to run on a bunch of different affordable FPGAs. You can uh, download their core, put it on the FPGA, run it, and there's plenty of other resources out there about uh, learning there. Uh, from a software perspective, there's two paths. Uh, you can uh, use emulation. So QEMU is a popular emulator where you can uh, essentially just download a program that's going to emulate the RISC-V environment and then write your code there. Uh, learn about the instruction set architecture by programming an assembly or write your own C program and see, you know, how is RISC-V different from those perspectives. But there is also some hardware out there that you can purchase. Uh, the website has that listed as well. Uh, the cheapest one today is the D1 board. That one runs about $100. Uh, the folks who brought you the Beagle board are coming out with a board early next year that'll be a little more expensive. I think around 150 was the uh, demo board that they sent out this year. Uh, so that'll be available next year. And then on the higher end, uh, there's two products. There's uh, MicroSemi came out with a security uh, uh an SOC called the Polar Fire that's really geared towards security research. And so that board, I think, is around $500 and is much more complex, but would be great, say, for a graduate student who is interested in doing a project uh, for their uh, graduate degree. And uh, the more sort of software-oriented board is the Unmatched board from Sci-5. So again, that one's going to be over $500, but it's much more of a desktop experience that you'll get. Stefano Chatola, Director of Technical Programs for Risk Five International Nagessis Hour on the Ask Noah Show. Stefano, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thanks very much. It was great being here. And if you want more information on Risk Five, uh, my producer uh, JT Pennington has also put together a interview uh, with his show, Open Source Voices. Um, he did an interview with Mark, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Hemmelstein, and uh, he's a CTO of Risk Five, And so I'd highly, highly encourage you to check that out. You can learn more at opensourcevoices.org slash 20. That's opensourcevoices.org. That's the site for the podcast, opensourcevoices.org slash 20. I'll take you straight to that interview. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Uh, Steve, thoughts on Risk Five? Anything that you've ever thought about playing with or something that you would potentially like to play with? I think that it's really interesting. Um, I tinker around with the ARM boards. I definitely would tinker around with the RISC-V board, um, you know, throw it on my backlog of things that I'd like to do one day. Yeah, I, th I think it's super interesting. I, I, 
I'm always interested in something that the rug can't be pulled out from under me. It's why I'm interested in self-hosting. It's why I'm interested um, in Linux, quite frankly. So um, we didn't get time, obviously, to dig into the news section. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll roll stories from one week to the next. I can't wait to tell you about Element One. It was just announced. You can learn more at element.io. Go get a sneak peek, element.io slash element dash one. It is the service I have been waiting for. Again, all my chats in one place. And this is at a fantastic price. So we're going to dig into that next week. But the music in my ears means we're out of time. So we will hand it off and uh, see you back next Tuesday. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can follow me on Twitter at Colonel Linux. You can follow him at Linux Ovens. The entire back catalog of the show is available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We don't trim that RSS feed, so you can go all the way back to episode one. If you like all of the articles and references that we talk about in the show, hey, they're all linked in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Click on the current episode. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.